We're working our way through John's gospel. This morning, is sexual immorality serious if God is merciful and pardons sinners? Is sexual immorality serious if God is merciful and pardons sinners? How, and how serious could it be? John 8, verses 2 through 11. I hope you have a Bible of some kind with you. Don't come to church without a Bible thinking, well, they'll just stick stuff up on the screens. Did you see the words to the hymn disappear? You cannot always count on electronics to get God's word into your mind. Bring a Bible of some kind with you. John 8, 2 through 11. Early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And here's how you interrupt a church service. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman, dragging her, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst, all the people. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Remember, he's talking to this big crowd. Verse 6, they said this to test him. They They don't care beans about this woman. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You know what the test is? Like, you see what's happening here, right? It's important to understand. Either Jesus is going to say, this is no big deal, let her go. And then they're going to say, boy, here's what Moses said. This is the scriptures. You, You call yourself this great teacher, Messiah, and you don't even honor the word. So he can go that route. Or he can say, yeah, boy, that's a rotten, dirty, lousy sinner stoner. And then while you might have some sense of divine justice, you sure don't think there's much compassion. So it's like they've got Jesus either way. It's a great test, especially we all have our convictions. It's another thing to state your convictions in front of a big group of people where you think there might be a lot of them who disagree with you, right? That takes a little more courage. So they said this to test him. Verse 6, right in the middle of the verse. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. I'm not going to speculate. Everybody speculates. Everybody speculates what he wrote on the ground. It doesn't say, and it doesn't matter. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, so he didn't answer them. They're not letting it go. They're going to ask the same thing over and over. You know, like a reporter gets somebody on the street and just sticks a mic in their face. You've seen it. And they don't let him go. Follow him all the way down the sidewalk. That's what's going on here. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, okay, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Eight. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Nine. But when they heard it, they went away 
one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Condemn sin. I don't condemn you. Sin no more. One of the signs of the fall, if you ever have to prove it to anybody, is the way religious people use Bible texts to their own advantage. In today's text, there's something incredibly freeing in the way Jesus speaks to this sinful woman. He speaks these beautiful words, verse 11, neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. That certainly is not what she expected, certainly isn't what she deserved. We're looking at the uh, wonder of grace in those words. We're looking at the wonder of pardon from the holiest person ever to live. We're looking at the miracle of pardon on this woman caught in the act of adultery. It's precisely the wonder of mercy in this text and others like it that it's a victim of so much abuse sometimes. Grace texts can be dangerous things in the hands of committed sinners. I can't tell you the number of times I've winced in my office over the years as worldly-minded churchgoers use Bible grace verses as ammunition to keep sinning. Happens all the time. You know the verses. There are a few choice ones that people have ready at the hip, ready to fire. Judge not that you be not judged, which they usually mean Don't even tell me that the Bible says what I'm doing is wrong. Who are you to judge? That's a favorite. And neither do I condemn you. John 8, 11, almost always leaving out the last half of that verse. It's kind of a tolerated Bible abuse in the body of Christ. And for all those reasons, today's text deserves really thoughtful study, I think. I think the title question is a fairly important one, whether I chose the perfect wording or not. Is sexual immorality really serious if God is merciful to sinners like this woman caught in adultery? Let's look at it for a while. Point number one. The woman's partner in adultery was never brought by the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's the important words. And that was tragic for him. The sexual discrimination that would bring the woman caught in the act of adultery, but not the man, that kind of injustice is almost universally pointed out. There's no way around the fact that the law of Moses, which these Pharisees quote, declared that both the man and the woman were to be put to death. It's in Deuteronomy, it's clear as a bell. Deuteronomy 22, 22, 
if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man, says it again, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge this evil from, and here's an important word, don't ignore that word, from Israel. It's important to remember, it's important to remember the uncomfortable truth that these words aren't Moses' words. They're God's words through Moses. Those last two words are important, from Israel, purification for Israel. And they point to the fact that the law was God's uh, theocratic governance of his people. There weren't police officers or RCMP or God was the legal authority over the nation Israel, not just its theology, but its legal system, its laws. The church doesn't stone adulteresses or kidnappers or Sabbath breakers or homosexual offenders or people who curse their parents. We all understand that. People who think they're being clever, pointing out the unreasonableness of enforcing these Old Testament laws in today's society are just showing their ignorance. The Bible never ever hints that those laws apply to the church today. It was the theocracy of Israel, the laws of that nation. Nonetheless, that clear command still reveals the ugliness of the bias in these religious leaders when they quote their version of the law. It's right there in John 5, 8. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? So it's easy to see the discrimination. It's easy to see the social injustice. Obviously, no law should be slanted in one criminal's favor over another. I get it. But I want to probe a bit deeper to a less obvious thought in this text. Yes, the wickedness and injustice of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's revealed, it's obvious. Both the man and the woman were equally guilty, breaking God's law. But think of this question instead. Who is the ultimate winner and who is the ultimate loser in this adulterous pair? Who's the ultimate winner? Who's the ultimate loser in this adulterous pair? It's easy to rush to the wrong conclusion. I mean, true, the bias is against the woman. There is injustice. But think again, just for a minute. One person, the woman, she received divine forgiveness and amnesty with God, the eternal judge. But the other, the man, well, he avoids the embarrassment. He avoids the social disgrace, to be sure. But as far as we know, he remained locked in his same condemned life like many persistent sinners. He probably fulfilled his days on earth thinking he was fortunate to get off the hook. The woman, not so lucky. And like most people who don't feel the probing 
exposure of sin in divine presence. That escape of notice probably made him feel confident to continue in his sinful addiction. But of course, one day, we don't know when, he died and faced eternal judgment. So I ask again, who was the fortunate one in this mixed up account? And I think the life lesson here is it's not always bad to be the one caught in a sin. And it's always bad not to be caught by God or conscience or the word. I say this because all of us go through times when our sins are exposed by others, sometimes with good intent, sometimes with nasty intent. And and when that happens, it's almost impossible to sense that God was involved in that painful exposure. We often miss God's painful grace in our humility, humiliating circumstances. While I might not want to consider it, I'm probably not wise enough to always feel as sensitive as I should to some of my own sins. Often we don't even see our own sins as offensive to God, at least not as offensive as the same sins when we see them in others. So so again, I just ask the question, Would this woman have come to find pardon, grace, forgiveness, life in Jesus Christ if these religious hypocrites hadn't trampled all over her rights and her dignity? Well, we'll never know for sure. She might have, but not likely. Not likely. Look for the hand of God, even in your humbling moments of repentance. All of that relates to our little title question. Is sexual immorality serious if God is merciful to sinners? I have a feeling, we'll never know, I have a feeling this woman would tell us today that Jesus' mercy and forgiveness was the most painful thing she ever experienced, I think. What a rough morning she had. This woman's experience, it seems miles away from the kind of sort of mild apology that gets tossed up to God when some Christians have finished enjoying their sin? Sorry about that. Probably this woman never forgot the humiliation, the disgrace, just the sheer embarrassment, being caught in the act of adultery, her sin exposed, I'm sure she would tell us that a lot of her pride got crucified that day. Yet she'd probably say, in retrospect, she'd probably say, yet it was was the best thing that happened to me. It was the best thing that happened to me. Long before Jesus told her to go and sin no more, before he even said that, I'm sure a large part of her old life was torn from her broken, bleeding heart. She came to the end of herself. She had nothing to rely on. Everything of her old life was seen as an unholy mess. She was forced to feel the pain 
of her old life before she received the grace of new life. It's the liberating, sometimes slow, embarrassing path of genuine repentance. I'm sorry to linger here, but it, it, I think it needs to be thought through. Is grace easy or hard? Is, is the entrance of grace simple? I talked about grace at the beginning of the service. Is the entrance of grace simple or disturbing? Which is it? And I sometimes think we confuse the fact that God's forgiving grace is free with the mistaken notion that it's just magic. How much of my heart has to be affected receiving divine grace? What part of my old self has to be pushed out and exposed to make room for divine grace? And here's a conclusion I've been processing on this whole subject of the freeness and the costliness of divine grace. There's a big picture understanding, and it comes from one verse of a prayer from King David, his classic example of receiving divine forgiveness in Psalm 51. And he, and he simply says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I'm interested in this phrase. And renew a right spirit within me. The principle, I think, is, is this. The reception of free divine grace has to come from a heart that's looking for more than just being let off the hook. The plea for divine grace has to be spawned in a heart that's sick of being what it is. David wants forgiveness, to be sure, nothing wrong with that. But it's not all he wants. He's, he's seen something really ugly. He's seen something ugly in his heart. It's in his inner self. He calls it the spirit within me. He wants that transformed. Renew a right spirit within me. I'm, I'm messed up in here. I take that to mean, I take that to mean David doesn't ever want to see his inner self, his mixed up inner self directing his life again, never again. That's what he's praying about. That inner spirit that steers, that directs, oh God, fix this. Not just forgive this, fix this. Renew a right spirit within me. Question. When Jesus told this woman, go and sin no more, I'm reading a book now on the commands of Jesus in the New Testament. It's a big book. All the commands of Jesus. Amazing. See some of the things Jesus actually commanded. I never thought of them. Here's one. Go, sin no more. It's not a suggestion. Did he intend, here's the question, did he intend for her to live the rest of her life in sinless perfection? What do you think? How many say, yes, Pastor Don, let's vote on it. I think she was supposed to live the rest of her life absolutely sinlessly. Any voters? How many think that's not what Jesus was expecting? Okay, we'll go with that one. Carrie. 
Here's what he's saying. I doubt that he meant, don't ever, ever, ever in deed, thought, motive, attitude, don't ever be sinful again. I don't think that's where Jesus was going. But I do believe he calls her not to assume his grace provided her with a moral pass to repeat this same sin over and over and over when she wasn't in his presence. There's the renewal of a right spirit that has to come. Divine grace never encourages repeated carelessness. All right, sorry, that was too long. Point number two. It's a sign of our corrupt nature, I guess, that we can frequently be more concerned with the sins of others than our own. I'm sure none of you are guilty of this. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, here we go. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin throw the first stone at her. The point of the account isn't that the sin of this adulterous woman wasn't serious. That's not the point. The point Jesus makes is religion, without the inward work of the Holy Spirit, can easily make us concerned more with the outward actions of others, and it helps us to think of ourselves as a little bit more righteous. We can get selective in the sins that we find offensive. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't, he never once in the whole text pronounces this woman innocent. He does call the leaders first to look into their own hearts. I mean, that's, that's what he does in verse 7. And as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin. Look in your heart, men. That's what Jesus is saying. That one. The one who doesn't have any sin, you go ahead Fire the first stone. Go ahead. Frederick Dale Bruner's words, I like them. His commentary on John. He says this. Jesus' question, let he without sin throw the first stone. Jesus' question is not intended to void justice. What judge or jury is sinless? But his question is intended to probe our motives in our pursuit of holiness. Sometimes we can, to use Jesus' words, see the speck in our brother's eye while missing the log in our own. Point number three. Jesus reveals incredible mercy to even serious acts of wickedness. They said to him, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. The law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? I think their point 
in reciting the commanded punishment is to remind Jesus that this is not some minor infraction, right? And Jesus never said anything to weaken the cutting edge of the law. In that theocratic law, death was a serious punishment because adultery was and is an incredibly offensive sin before a holy God. So there's no stepping around all that in our text, and that's not what Jesus is doing. Here's what Jesus is doing. Do you ever, ever, ever feel you've sinned so badly and you're so unworthy that God couldn't forgive you anymore. Does anyone in this room ever feel, I'm not a light sinner. I've messed up terribly. And I don't think there's much hope for me. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. Do you ever feel that if if perhaps your failure wasn't so wicked or so repeated or so joy-destroying that perhaps then you'd start over with the Lord. But mm, that's why this is in your Bible. That's why this story is recorded. What shall we do with really serious failures? What about really big sins? Oh, how we need this story. There was actually one person, you know, there was actually one person in this whole crowd who was sinless. There would have been one person in this whole crowd who would have been qualified to cast the first stone. Jesus could have. Why didn't he? Just because he's loving and compassionate? Part of the answer part of the answer. I'll tell you why. Jesus knows that in a matter of months, this woman's sin, she doesn't have to pay for it herself, but it doesn't lighten the sin at all. Jesus knows that in a few months, he will die himself and shed his blood for this woman's sin of adultery. The sin isn't ignored. It's completely pardoned. It's paid for. Uh, Its sentence is carried out, however you want to put it. Jesus knows he can say, go and sin no more because he's not whitewashing this person's sin. He's going to atone for it. That's what Jesus does with serious sins. Four. We're almost done. It is possible to feel guilty in conscience without receiving mercy from Jesus Christ. I think this needs to be said. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down, wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. This is fascinating. Why 
does Jesus open up and lay bare the sins of this woman's accusers? Because that's what he's doing. He's pointing out the fact that they're guilty too. Why does he do it? Does he do it just to embarrass them? Old Matthew Henry offers up his unique explanation. I like it. I never had thought of it. He says this, quote, He, Jesus, aimed to bring not only the prisoner, the woman, to repentance by showing her his mercy, but the prosecutors too, by showing them their sins. They sought to ensnare him. He sought to convince so he could convert them. But here's what happened. The men who brought this woman, they felt obviously embarrassed enough that they couldn't stand before Jesus anymore, right? They felt embarrassed enough for their wickedness to slip away. But they were just convicted. As far as we know, they were not responding to Jesus and his forgiving grace. They were getting away from his convicting presence. So it is, I think, possible to feel the weight of sin without ever actually dealing with Jesus, the Redeemer. The woman, she just stays. They're all gone. She stays right with Jesus. Why? She really had no reason to stay once all her accusers had left. No one was holding her there anymore. Jesus was still writing on the ground when the gentlemen start slipping away. Everyone else leaves. Everyone else avoids confrontation with the holy love of Jesus. And she could have gone along with the others. And so we learn, I think, sinners need to... Sinners need to just stay with Jesus. They need to learn that his heart is big and healing and forgiving for those who feel the true shame of their actual guilt and sin. We learn that Jesus isn't a threat to those who want a clean heart. He's still the same. Renew a right spirit within me. My, my insides constantly take me in the wrong direction. I need to be forgiven for all my past sins. And I need your Holy Spirit to rule and reign my life to keep me from future ones. I need Jesus. Let's pray.